Good morning again. As we start this morning, I want you to grab your Bible. I just want you to hold it in your lap for a moment. Just hold it in your lap. Or if, you, if you're a phone person, I'm not going to condemn you this morning. But go ahead and open up your app so that you sort of have your Bible open. <laughs> Take a look at it now. And ask yourself this question, how did this Bible get here? How did this Bible get here? As you ponder that, here's a couple things to to think about. Maybe things that you've taken for granted, or maybe just things that you haven't thought about in a while, but let me try to remind you of a few things. You're holding in your hands a collection of letters, words, sentences, paragraphs, chapters, and books that were breathed out through human authors by the creator of this universe. Think about that. You're holding in your hands every bit of information you will ever need to have to understand who you are, why you were made, and what your eternal destiny will be. You're holding in your hands right now a thorough description of both mankind's greatest problem and the remedy For that problem, you're holding in your hands a full explanation of the deepest parts of your heart your needs, your desires, your motivations, and your choices. And you're holding in your hands a collection of writings carefully carefully gathered over a period of 1900 years into one single authorized canon, divinely preserved through centuries of tribulation and war. Supernaturally transmitted from generation to generation, meticulously checked and rechecked in waves of textual criticism, and over time translated, get this, into more more than 3,000 languages across the world. Listen to this. It started on papyrus and leather and parchment, hand-copied, hand-copied by ancient scribes over the centuries. And today, it's available on a touchscreen on your mobile device. Hundreds of translations in hundreds of languages, one touch away. Amazing, right? All the forces of the devil and the flesh and the world have aligned for all these centuries to try and stop the word of God that you hold in your hand from spreading. But as we just heard in the video, the gates of hell cannot and will not prevail over it. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said, but my words will not pass away. Now, as you know, today's Reformation Sunday. It's always the last Sunday in October. It marks the day that Martin Luther posted a list of propositions that he titled 95 Theses on the Power of Indulgences. And he posted them on the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, October 31st in the year 15. 17. And by doing so, not by design, by the way, but all by accident, as if there's accidents in God's kingdom, he sparked a revolution that, as one contemporary would later write, he set the entire world on fire. Now think about that. How does an everyday academic debate over a very ordinary subject in a little sleepy town like Wittenberg end up setting an entire continent on fire? Think about that. And the answer is, and it's my favorite answer to every single historical question, 
Sovereignty. Yeah. Because God sovereignly ordained it to take place. He made it so. Historically, it was just the perfect time in God's sovereignty for a revolution to take place. All the circumstances you need for a revelation were present in Germany. Religious corruption, abuse of power, social and economic misery, nationalistic passions, a restless population. And God had the right man in Martin Luther with the right personality who was willing not just to strike the match that started it all, but had the fortitude to see the fight through to the very end. And while there's a whole slew of important religious and theological issues at stake in the Reformation, you can say that one thing stands alone at the center of it all, and it's the authority of Scripture. The authority over that book in your lap right now, or that that app that you've launched, the authority of that very book that you have is at the center of this movement that changed the world. 500 years later, that book that you have in your hand, in your lap, is just as controversial as it was in 1517. It's equally loved by God's children and equally hated and feared by God's enemies. Now, I realize that everybody here this morning does not love history as much as I do. Not everybody's a geek like me. But I want you to understand that the Reformation is worth your time. Why? Well, it's because the Reformation is your history. Whether you know it or not, it is your spiritual heritage as a Bible-loving Christian, and this is why the elders put it on our church calendar every year. Understand that the Reformation was not a simple dispute over secondary matters. It was a battle for the very heart and soul of our faith. In fact, it's the reason why you and I have the freedom to gather here today to open our Bibles and to read it in our own common language. Many of our spiritual ancestors suffered greatly for the privilege that we enjoy today. They were excommunicated, Many were hunted down and beaten and tortured and, yes, burned alive for the luxury that we have today in 2019. And it all began 500 years ago when a single man stood before the greatest assembly of of power that Europe had seen to that point. And in the face of enormous pressure, he stood fast for the authority of Scripture. That's what we celebrate today. That's what we observe. Now, Having had you take out your Bible and launch your app, I want you to set it aside. But I want you to be aware of its presence throughout this message today. If you're visiting with us this morning, this is a very unique Sunday. If it's your first Sunday, you're like, wait, did he just say put the Bible aside? Today is Historical Theology Sunday. We don't normally do this. As anyone here will tell you, we just spent almost three years doing an expository study in Romans. So that's what we value. But for today, we're going to talk more about the Bible than we are to open it up and read it. Because we can learn much theology just in studying the history of how the Bible has come to arrive in our laps today. Today's message, as you can see on the screen, is titled, Here I Stand. That is a quote taken from perhaps the most famous thing that Martin Luther said in the year 1521 at the Diet of Worms. Now, we're going to go ahead and get all the jokes out of the way about the Diet of Worms. It's not the Diet of Worms. Okay? There's a million internet themes that look like this that are out there right now, Martin Luther eating a bowl of worms. It's the diet of, say with me, worms. Come on, do we have Germans in the audience? Diet is the Latin word for assembly. So just to to get all this out of the way, I'm going to call it an assembly throughout the message just so that you don't have that image stuck in your brain. This morning what I want to explain to you is the details surrounding what happened 
at this important assembly in the year 1521. What was it that Luther said there that quite literally changed the religious landscape of medieval Europe? As many of you know something about his background, Martin Luther was a promising young scholar back in the day. He was, according to his father, headed towards law school. But at the age of 22, he had a spiritual crisis, what he called his thunderstorm crisis, when he believed that God was going to strike him down in a storm. And it led him to join the Roman Catholic priesthood. He committed his life to an Augustinian monastery in the German town of Erfurt. I'll get rid, get rid of that picture. Three years after going into the monastery, he was sent to a brand new university that had been built in northwestern Saxony in the sleepy town of Wittenberg. And while he was there, Luther excelled in his studies. He earned his doctorate of theology and quickly was named to the faculty in the university. Within five years of gaining his post as a professor and doctorate of theology, Luther found himself literally at the center of a controversy that we're still talking about today, something he never could have expected. So what happened? Well, very simply, he observed the local peasants in Germany being abused by papal representatives. They were selling fraudulent indulgences. And so Luther lodged a protest with the local Catholic bishop, but he failed to get an acceptable response. And so Luther set out to draft a document that today we call the 95 Theses. This was a serious theological challenge to the local officials to consider what was going on in the German territories. Now, it really wasn't all that out of the ordinary for a scholar to do this. However, as you heard in the video, Luther had a certain um, attitude that drew attention. He had a certain fight within him and a certain use of language which tended to upset people just a bit. I'll give you an example. In thesis number 86, he writes this, Why does the Pope, whose wealth today is greater than that of the richest emperor, build the Basilica of St. Peter with the money of poor believers rather than with his own money? Asking that type of a question in the 16th century could get you killed. That was a serious challenge to Rome. And so, written in Latin, Luther posted this, this challenge on the city's church door. Again, a very ordinary thing to do in academic debates, but it was quickly snatched by some of his colleagues, and it was translated from Latin into the common German language, and it began to be disseminated all over Germany within weeks because of the printing press that had recently been invented, it was spread all over Germany. People were reading a challenge to Rome in their own language in every pub in Germany. And within two months, the 95 Theses had spread in every language all across Europe, and yes, landed in the hands of Pope Leo X. Now you can imagine how the Pope responded. To make a long story short, he was not pleased with Luther. In fact, he's on record of having called him a, a dirty little German monk. The elitism and the arrogance. And over the next three years, the Pope did everything he could to quash the Lutheran movement. He charged Luther with heresy. He excommunicated him from the church. He issued what he calls a papal bull, ordering all of Luther's writings to be banned and to be burned. He threatened Luther's very life. And keep in mind that at this time, the papacy already had a long-established habit of taking heretics and burning them at the stake. So this was not 
the first time they had dealt with this type of a problem. Finally, towards the year 1520, Luther was ordered to answer the charges against him. He was invited to come to an assembly. Now, when I say invited, I'm putting air quotes around it. He was invited to come to an assembly and to defend his ideas. Now, that was reminiscent of a previous reformer named Jan Hus, who had also been invited to come to a church council to defend his ideas only when he arrived to be arrested and burned at the stake. So personally, at the time of the assembly at Worms, for Luther personally, the stakes couldn't have been higher. Now, before we go any further, I do want to say one thing. I want to make one thing very clear, because some of you guys, I know how you feel about history. It's okay. We can agree, agree to disagree. But let me just say this. As we recall this story, and as we study the life of a man that has a, 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 just, a, just a huge figure in theological history, I want to point this out. We do not worship church fathers or reformers. Can I get an amen? amen? We are very aware that in many ways Luther was a flawed man, just as we all are. And frankly, he's really not even the hero of this story. You know who's the hero of the Reformation? God. And that's true, by the way, every book you read in the Bible, you think, well, Paul's the hero, or Moses, or no, God's the hero, always. God is working through this very flawed man. So I can say with certainty that our hero, God, used this man, Luther, to accomplish some pretty incredible things according to his sovereign plan. And that truth that we know is true allows us to sort of relax, to hear the story, and to praise the Lord for his sovereign hand, because he intervenes in the affairs of men. Aren't you glad? Good. He's a sovereign God. So when this assembly was first announced, it was scheduled for January 6, 1521 in the imperial city of Nuremberg. But because the plague had recently broken out there, the location was moved to Worms, which happened to be an ecclesiastical site where a local Roman Catholic bishop was seated. What that meant for Luther is he was literally walking into the teeth of the beast. Let me introduce you to some of the characters involved. The first guy we should know about is this guy. His name is Charles V. Now, Charles was the emperor over this thing that we call today the Holy Roman Empire. And I know that completely confuses people. If you haven't studied history, you're like, the Holy what? The Holy Roman Empire. Now, what this does allow me to do is what? Put up a map. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Good. You knew that was going to happen. To put up a map... So that you can see, see that gold section in the middle? That is the Holy Roman Empire in the year 1517. Towards the bottom of the screen, you see where Rome is. The blue circle is where Wittenberg is. That's where Luther is, is teaching. And the yellow dot there is where Worms is. So you can get sort of an idea of the geography. So keep in mind that in 1517, many of the, the nations that we know of today in Europe, they weren't officially independent states. So you can see how large a landmass this was that Charles ruled over. Today, that would be all of Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium, Switzerland, Austria, and portions of Italy and the Czech Republic. That ain't all bad. Charles was one of the most powerful rulers in the world. He wielded a vast army, and so he and the Pope worked hand in hand. He was said to be the temporal arm of God, as the Pope was the spiritual arm of God. So they were to work hand in hand to ensure the survival and the spread of the Catholic faith. Charles was also a highly educated man. He spoke six languages fluently. In fact, one of his most famous quotes goes like this. I speak Latin to God, Italian to women, French to men, 
and German to my horse. And that tells you everything you need to know about what he thought of the German people. It's true. He didn't like them. His only problem was at this point in history, this is a picture of him in 1517 or an artist's rendering. He was very, very young. He'd been emperor for all of two years. He was 20 years old, wielding all of that power over all of that land. He was completely inexperienced at handling a religious crisis like the one he was facing with. Still, he committed that he was going to personally preside over this assembly and work things out. And every German nobleman and prince wanted to be there to sort of test this young emperor to see how he would handle himself. Now, here's what Charles was facing. You have to understand the politics of this assembly. First, he was feeling heavy pressure from Rome to subdue Luther and to put the German people back in their place. Pope Leo, who felt over and over again that Luther had insulted him, was sending a a very special papal emissary to the assembly. A papal nuncio is what he's called. He was a cardinal by the name of Alejandro. And his job was to reestablish the pontiff's authority and to make sure that Luther was submitted and properly punished. That was one side of the pressure that Charles was facing to make the pope happy. On the other side of the conflict were the elector princes of Germany, men who ruled territories within his Holy Roman Empire. These were men who Charles needed on his side to support his rule and to provide soldiers for his army. And while many of the German princes weren't necessarily in favor of Luther's revolution, all of them had grievances against Rome. So there was an interesting dynamic happening, economic grievances against the Pope and against the emperor. And so the princes came to the assembly that in that year, hoping to use Luther as a tool for leverage so that they could get more power against both the emperor and the pope. So Charles' goal was this, somehow detach these German princes from Luther and at the same time satisfy the pope without offending those same princes. This is a very tricky thing that he was facing. One of the most important of those German princes was a man named Frederick of Saxony. Frederick was a very powerful man, well-respected man. He had become Luther's sponsor and protector. Less than 10 years earlier, he had literally built the University of Wittenberg, and he was the one who hired Luther as a doctor of theology. He did not want to see his prized professor be abused by Rome. So Charles, the emperor, had sent a personal letter to Frederick asking him to bring Luther to the assembly in Worms, and he assured Frederick that Luther would not be harmed. He put his word on it, and he will have safe conduct to and from the assembly. But Frederick was not naive. He knew that Luther was in very real danger. Two things could happen. Number one, legally the emperor could arrest him on the spot and have him executed. That was within his power. On the other side, the papal representatives could also arrest him and turn him over to the Inquisition. Frederick knew this. Frederick knew what type of danger Luther was in. So would he come to Worms? Most people in 1517 said, not a chance. There's no way Luther would come to Worms. But Luther, as I said, had a certain attitude about him, a certain uh, resolve in his heart. And so here's what he wrote back to Frederick. He said, if the emperor calls me, I cannot doubt that it is the call of God himself. If they desire to use violence against me, I place the matter in the Lord's hands. If he will not save me, my life is of little consequence anyway. Let us only prevent that the gospel be exposed to the scorn of the wicked and let us shed our blood for it. 
Luther trusted in God's sovereignty. Now, you saw that map. Travel in the 16th century was a big deal. 320 miles Luther had to travel from Wittenberg to Worms. It would take months to arrive. It also wasn't easy for Alejandro coming from Rome to get there. And so he traveled and everywhere he went in the German territories, he was absolutely alarmed at what he saw. Everywhere he went in Germany, people were shouting the name of Luther. This guy had become a rock star in Germany. He was a true folk hero of the people. In fact, Alejandro would write back home uh, saying this, Germany is separating from Rome and the princes are separating from the Pope. A little more delay, a little more negotiation, and all hope will be gone. He was concerned about what he saw. Luther, in contrast, was in great spirits. Here's what he wrote to a friend before he left. He said, I rejoice with all my heart that his imperial majesty desires to summon me of all people before him. I call on Jesus Christ as my witness. This is the cause of the whole German nation, of the universal church, of the Christian world, nay, of God himself. I am ready to answer in obedience to my conscience and to my oath as a doctor of the Holy Scriptures. On the day of his departure, Luther was saying his goodbyes. He turned to his young protege, Philip Melanchthon. He said this, He said, my dear brother, if I do not return and my enemies put me to death, continue to teach and stand fast in the truth. Labor in my stead since I shall no longer be able to labor for myself. If you survive, my friend, my death will be a little consequence. And so Luther got into this humble cart and began this 300 plus mile trip to Worms. And as he departed, the citizens of Wittenberg came out weeping. And crying out, they did not expect him to come back alive. And that scene repeated itself. According to the historians, every town that Luther went through, every town, massive amounts of crowds followed him, encouraged him on in his faith, almost as if he were like a victorious general leading, leading off to battle. So before we finish the story, then let's take a step back and let's ask an important question. What exactly was Luther going to fight for? What was he planning to fight for? Well, you've got to know something about the Bible in the year 1500. In that year, European Christians had been without a Bible that they could read for themselves for a thousand years. Can you imagine? For a thousand years, European Christians could not read the Bible for themselves. The only Bible they had at that time that was available was what we call the Vulgate Bible. It had been translated into Latin by the scholar Jerome in the year 380. Now, here's the problem. The average person couldn't own a Vulgate Bible, nor could they read it. They couldn't read Latin. Bible manuscripts were found only in monasteries, and they were usually chained to a pulpit. And the only words of Scripture the average Christ follower knew then was the little sort of garbled snippets that they heard repeated over and over again in Latin in the masses each week. That's all they knew. Even theologians of the day weren't known to study the Scriptures Directly. They would prefer to read scholastic words by Aquinas or Scotus or others. They would much prefer to read the works of men than the works of God. In fact, as an example of this, Luther would later cite, he had a fellow professor at Wittenberg by the name of Karlstadt. He said, Karlstadt didn't even own a Bible at the time he got his doctorate in theology. Think about that. That's how bad it was in the year 1500. Imagine this. Thomas Bilney was an English scholar who 
eventually would be burned at the stake for his reformed faith, he wrote in his journal that he came across the words of 1 Timothy 1.15 only because he learned how to read Latin. And you may know the verse that says this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Friends, that simple truth, that verse was unread, unknown, and untaught in the year 1500. Imagine that. Instead of the pure gospel, the medieval population was being taught that salvation was not found in Christ alone, it was found in the Catholic Church alone. That salvation came by good works, that it it came by participation in the sacraments, and that only through the mediation of, of, of the church's authorized priesthood could anybody hope to be saved. In short, a 16th century Christian believed that God was a, a God who simply enabled people how to, to work hard and to possibly, possibly earn their way to salvation. And so there was no assurance of salvation for anyone. The average person living in the 16th century, their expectation of passing from this life to the next was fearful, full of terror, and absolutely knowing that they would spend umpteen numbers of years being punished in purgatory. That was what Luther was fighting against. And so it's no wonder that a man like Luther, who was so passionate in his faith, was constantly disturbed by his own spiritual condition. He had no assurance. This is what he wrote. He said, I was a good monk. I kept my orders so strictly that if ever a man could get to heaven through monastic discipline, I would have entered in. And yet this is what he said. My conscience still would not give me certainty. I always doubted. I always said, you didn't do that right. You weren't contrite enough. You left this or that out of your confession. The more I tried to remedy an uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience with human traditions, the more I found my conscience uncertain, weaker, and more troubled. And that's why when he discovered in the book of Romans, when he picked up the book of Romans for the first time, could you imagine? He had committed his life to serving in the priesthood and the monastery before he'd even seen a Bible. But when he picked up the book of Romans, he saw that man is justified by faith alone. And as he would write later, he said, it was as if I had entered paradise through open gates. It meant that instead of living in angst and terror, a Christ follower, a true Christian could live at peace with God. And Luther would later preach this beautiful truth. Here's what he said. When the devil throws up our sins to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, here's what we ought to say. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does it mean that I'll be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Folks, you didn't hear that type of preaching in the 16th century. And this is why the truth that came out of this Lutheran movement gave the common man and the common woman in Germany hope for the first time, and a hunger for true biblical teaching. Finally, they got to hear the Bible speak, not just their priest. The Bible would speak about the good news that God saves sinners by His grace. And in a world that was so filled with religious guilt, overwrought with religious shame, Luther's message was life-changing and life-giving. And that's why, in my opinion... I know that we talk on a day like this about the posting of the 95 Theses. The most dangerous thing that Luther ever did was really not post those those theses. It's what he did after the assembly at Worms when he translated the Bible 
into the common German language. That was the most dangerous thing. That was the biggest rock he threw in the ecclesiastical pond because those ripples are still being felt today, long after the issue of indulgences has passed. Philip Schaff, the great church historian, described the threat that Luther posed to Rome. He said, Luther made the Bible the people's book. It was the book that was now in the church. It was in the schools, and it was in their houses. Not only that, Luther had the audacity to translate his Bible from the original Greek, <gasps> not going through the Latin Vulgate, which was the only Bible that was approved by the papacy. That alone was heresy in, in their eyes. But the truth is this, by virtue of Bible translation, Rome would slowly lose her ability to control God's word before the people, and it would eventually expose their sins and errors for everyone to see. So let's continue with the story. The mo on the morning of April 16th, Luther came to the ancient gates of the city of Worms. By the way, still standing today, restored but still standing. Some nobles and knights rode out on horseback to meet him. They formed a, a circle around him and they escorted him into the city. And you have to try to picture this now. The city was, the crowds were massive. To see really this confrontation between all the power of Rome and this solitary German monk. Nobody had ever seen anything like it. People cheering for the, the hero of Germany. And also many of them warning, turn around, go back. You will not come out of here alive. And as Luther got out of his car, he shouted to the crowd this. He said, God will be my defense. Now, Charles had been there for some time. He had already summoned his council. And the Bishop of Palermo that came spoke for many of those present when he said this. He said, he turned to the emperor. He said, we have all long consulted on this matter. Let your imperial majesty get rid of this man at once. We are not bound either to give or to observe the safe conduct of a heretic. Most of those who came on the papal side of this conflict wanted Luther, just like Huss, to be arrested and burnt immediately. Well, the next day when Luther was to appear before the emperor, the crowd that filled the streets had gotten even bigger. Historians tell us that when Luther tried to get to the hall where the assembly was, he couldn't even get through the crowd. They had to call out all kinds of imperial soldiers to make arrests and to basically quell a riot because so many people wanted to just touch Luther, to bless him in some way. When he finally entered the interior of the hall where the assembly was going to take place, every corner of it was filled to the rafters. One observer wrote this, Never before had a man appear before so imposing an assembly. Listen to who was in attendance and try to, try to picture... I don't know if there's, a, if there's a, a parallel of us maybe standing before Congress or, or what it might be, but listen to what he was faced with. In attendance was, of course, the, the Holy Roman Emperor himself, Charles, his younger brother, the Archduke Ferdinand, who was 17 at the time and was next in line to the throne, six elector princes and 24 dukes of various German territories were in the room, eight margraves, which are military commanders, of the empire were there, 30 Roman Catholic bishops and archbishops were there, seven ambassadors from other Catholic countries, including England and France, were present. There was Aleandro, the papal nuncio, and one very learned Roman scholar who Luther already knew well. His name was Johann Eck. Eck was the great enemy of Luther. Luther had already confront, been confronted by him, had debated him, and Eck was just about the smartest guy that the Roman church could throw at Luther. He would serve as, this is so scary, inquisitor and prosecutor 
at Worms. Now, one thing to keep in mind as you try to picture this whole scene, just by virtue of Luther being there, he had won a victory. Just by being there, Rome was on its heels. Think about this. The Pope had already condemned him. He'd already excommunicated him. He'd already issued a papal bull against his writings. He had already ordered Luther to be silent. And yet here was this man standing before Charles with an opportunity to speak before hundreds of the most powerful men in all of Europe and with a chance to preach the pure gospel and to defend the authority of Scripture. Do you think he was pretty excited about this opportunity? One historian described it like this. In that moment, Rome was already descending from her throne. And it was the voice of a simple monk that caused her humiliation. So the guards cut a path for Luther as he approached the emperor. And the marshal of the court addressed him. He said, you are to say nothing in his majesty's presence until you are questioned. And so at that moment, Luther now stood in the middle of this vast room all by himself with all the power of Europe completely encircling him. Eck, the prosecutor, said with a loud and clear voice, Martin Luther, his imperial majesty, has invited you before his throne in accordance with the advice and counsel of the states of the Holy Roman Empire to require you to answer two questions. He pointed at about 20 books on a table in the middle of the hall. First, do you acknowledge these books to have been written by you? And the titles of the books were announced so that everyone could hear. Secondly, he said, are you prepared to retract these books and their contents, or do you persist in the opinions that you have advanced in them? You can imagine the, the hush that fell over the audience. This was the moment. What was Luther going to say? Was he going to back down? Luther quietly responded, Most gracious emperor, gracious princes and lords, his majesty has asked me two questions. As to the first, I acknowledge his mind these books. I cannot deny them. As to the second, seeing that it's a question which concerns faith and the salvation of souls, and in which the word of God, the greatest and most precious treasure, either in heaven or on earth, is interested I should act imprudently were I to reply without reflection. I might affirm less than the circumstances demand or more than the truth requires, and so sin against Christ. For this reason, I entreat your majesty with all humility to allow me time that I might answer without offending the word of God. Basically, he asked for a time out to consider Many in the room that day believed that Luther had buckled to the pressure. That he had gotten there and it was, it was just too much. It was just too intimidating. Others said, no, 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 I don't think so. I think what he's doing is showing a, a righteous sense of humility before these powers. But you can imagine as he went back to his room that night, rumors spread all throughout the city and people screamed, Luther retreated. Rome has her victory. Violence broke out in the streets, people fighting with soldiers, others throwing the, the books of Luther into a giant bonfire. It was chaos. Most of the people that night believed that the Lutheran movement was over at that moment. That it was more than likely that the next day he was going to cower once again, he'd be arrested, and we'd find him burned at the stake within days. Secretly in his chambers, Cardinal Aleandro was confident. He wrote that night, 
Quote, the monk has asked for time. He will retract. At a distance, his speech was arrogant, but now his courage fails him. But after a night of prayer, Luther was at peace. In the morning, he woke up, he read from his Bible, he looked over his writings, and he fashioned a reply. At four o'clock in the afternoon, the herald came back, conducted him to the hall where the emperor once again sat, and once again, Eck shouted in a loud voice, Martin Luther, yesterday you begged for a delay that has now expired. Assuredly, it should not have been conceded as every man, and especially you, such a great and learned doctor of the scriptures, should always be ready to answer any question that touches his faith. Now, therefore, reply to the question put by his majesty. Will you defend your books, or are you ready to disavow? According to witnesses that day, here's was Luther's answer. And it's long, but it's worth listening to, because in it, you will hear lots of good theology. Most serene emperor, illustrious princes, gracious lords, by God's mercy, I ask your majesty and your highness to listen graciously to the defense of the cause which I am assured is just and true. If through ignorance I should transgress the proprieties of the court, I beg your pardon, for I was not brought up in the palaces of kings, but in the seclusion of a convent. Yesterday, two questions were put to me on behalf of His Imperial Majesty. The first, if I was the author of the books whose titles were enumerated. I then made my answer, and I persevere in that reply. As to the second, if I would retract or defend the doctrine I taught in them, and here I answer. I have written works on many different subjects. There are some in which I have treated faith and good works in a matter at once so pure, so simple, so scriptural, that even my adversaries, far from finding anything to censure in them, agree that these works are useful and worthy of being read by all pious men. If, therefore, I were to retract these, what should I do? What a wretched man I would be if I alone should abandon truths that both friends and enemies alike approve and confess. Secondly, I've written books against the papacy in which I've attacked those who, by their false doctrine their evil lives, and their scandalous example afflict the Christian world and destroy both body and soul. Ouch. Is it not evident that the human doctrines and the laws of popes entangle, torment, and vex the consciences of believers while the crying and perpetual extortions of Rome swallow up the wealth and the riches of Christendom and especially of the German nation? He's starting to get fired up, isn't he? Starting to get warmed up. Were I to retract what I have said on this subject, what should I do but lend additional strength to tyranny and open the floodgates to a torrent of impiety? Lastly, I have written books against individuals who desired to defend the Roman tyranny and to destroy the faith. I frankly confess that I may have attacked them with more acrimony than is becoming of my ecclesiastical profession. That was Luther's way of sort of apologizing. He had been pretty strong in his language. If, you read, if you've read his stuff, you know what I'm talking about. He was, he was strong. Let's just put it that way in his language. I do not consider myself a saint, he wrote, but I cannot disavow these writings, for by doing so, I would sanction the impiety of my adversaries, and they would seize the opportunity of oppressing the people of God with still greater cruelty. I am but a mere man and not God. I shall therefore defend myself as Christ did. Uh-oh. 
If I have spoken evil, bear witness of that evil. I ask you, most serene emperor, and you, most illustrious princes, to prove from the writings of the prophets and the apostles where I have erred. As soon as I'm convinced of this, I will retract every error and be the first to lay hold of my books and throw them into the fire. In other words, pull out your Bibles and prove it to me. Show me where I've erred. And you know what? If I've erred, I'll be the first one to admit it. He goes on. What I have said just plainly shows, I hope, that I have carefully weighed and considered the dangers to which I now expose myself. But far from being dismayed, I rejoice to see that the gospel is now, as in former times, a cause of trouble and dissension. This is the character and destiny of the word of God. I came not to send peace on earth, but a sword, said Jesus. God is both wonderful and terrible in his counsels. Beware, lest by presuming to quench dissensions, you should persecute the holy word of God and draw down upon yourselves a frightful deluge of insurmountable dangers, of disasters, and eternal desolation. Luther had the audacity to warn all of these religious figures about what they were doing. That was enough. Immediately, the marshal of the court interrupted Luther, and he shouted at him, You have not answered the question put to you, he said. You were not summoned here to call into question the decisions of church councils. You are required to give a clear and precise answer. Will you or will you not retract? Luther drew a, a deep breath. He said, and you get a sense that he sort of gathered himself. He knew he had gotten pretty fired up there. Since your most serene majesty and your highness require from me a clear, simple, and precise answer, I will give you one. And it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to popes or to councils because it is clear that they have frequently erred and contradicted each other. Unless, therefore, I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture and by clear reason, I cannot and I will not Retract, for it is unsafe for a Christian to speak against his conscience. And then pausing to look around the assembly, seeing all these powerful men around him, with his life hanging in the balance, he said, Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Can you picture the scene? I mean, the most powerful man in all of Christendom utterly dumbstruck by a single monk standing in the middle of the room. And the room erupted into audible gasps and shouts. Even Charles was moved. It's said that he turned to one of his attendants and said, this monk speaks with a fearless heart. That's an understatement. Quieting the room, the marshal gave Luther one last chance. If you do not retract, he shouted, The emperor and the states of the empire will consult as to what course to adopt against such an incorrigible heretic. That was a threat on his life because everyone knew what that action would be. And so Luther repeated, may God be my helper for I can retract nothing. Friends, that's what it means to stand on the word of God. That's what it means to stand for truth. We need that spirit today, don't we? 
In our culture today, that spirit is becoming more and more necessary. So what's the postscript to the whole story? A couple things. The papal authorities did indeed try to arrest Luther after leaving Worms, but Frederick, his protector, clever as he was, moved quickly to snatch Luther off the road and whisk him away to a secret location. And so for the next 10 months, nobody, not the emperor, not the pope, nobody but Frederick and the soldiers who snatched him knew where Luther was. He was a ghost. For 10 months, he was holed up in a castle in the city of Wartburg, given all the time that he needed and all the resources that he needed to produce the greatest work of his life, the German New Testament. Even a threat against his life, God sovereignly used to produce, as I said, the most important thing that Luther did. Charles V would go on to reign over the Holy Roman Empire for another 35 years. He became one of the most successful, powerful, wealthy monarchs of the entire medieval period, but he always had one regret. Towards the end of his life, he he wrote this, I confess that I committed a great error by permitting Luther to live. I ought to have broken my word and avenged the insult he had committed against God. It is because I did not put him to death that heresy has not ceased to advance to this day. Luther himself would live to be the age of 62. And over the 25 years after the assembly of Worms, he continued to do Bible translation, finishing the entire Bible within another few years. He wrote many commentaries. Along with Melanchthon, he would draft what's called the Augsburg Confession, the great theological summary that is still to this day the confession of the Lutheran church across the world. And he continued, most importantly, to preach and teach God's word right up to the end of his life. Just give you a brief sample of some of the things that he said about God's word in his later years. For 28 years, he wrote, since I became a doctor, I have constantly read and preached the Bible, and yet I have not exhausted it. I find something new in it every day. The Bible is a remarkable fountain. The more one draws and drinks of it, the more it stimulates the thirst. Anybody testify that that's true? You will never exhaust that Bible that you have in your lap. Never. I have read through the Bible twice every year, Luther said. If you picture the Bible to be a mighty tree and every word a little branch, I have shaken every one of those branches because I want to know, above all else, what it says and what it means. What a great way to guide your life. If I could today become a king or an emperor, Luther wrote, I would never give up my office as a preacher of God's word. That's the heart of a preacher and a teacher. And to the end, Luther was willing to fight and die for this. This is, what, this is what gets me excited. Listen to the wisdom in this. He says, the gospel cannot be defended without turmoil or without scandal. The word of God is a sword, a war, a ruin, a stumbling block, a destruction. As Amos says, it meets us like a bear in the road or a lioness in the forest. If the gospel was to be propagated or maintained by the powers of this world, God would not have entrusted it to fishermen, he wrote. It belongs not to the princes and pontiffs of this age to defend the word of God. They have enough to do to shelter themselves from the judgments of the Lord. I love this. This is the last one. He says, let Rome destroy my works. I deserve nothing better, for all my wish has been to lead souls to the Bible so that they might afterwards neglect my writings. 
If we had knowledge of Scripture, what need would there be of any books of mine? Great humble stance about his own writings. So, go back to that Bible in your hands this morning or on your phone. In light of the story that we've just heard, question for you. Have you taken access to God's Word for granted? Too often, have you let it sit there on your bookshelf or on your desk unopened? I don't say that to shame you or to make you feel guilty. We're all guilty of that, right? I say that to challenge you. I say that to encourage you to see both your Bible and your study habits in a new light. Friends, blood has been shed so that you can have that Bible. Lives have been lost so that you can read it in your common language. Here's an even bigger question. When the pressure comes at you, are you willing to stand on that word? When the pressure comes, are you willing, as Luther did, to stand? If the culture isolates you and accuses you of being a radical, clinging to your ancient text, will you stand in that day? If the government orders you to disavow it under threat of imprisonment, will you stand? Now, you may think that day may never come. Don't be so sure. In every generation, we can expect new attacks to come against the truth contained in God's Word. Every generation faces it. And in every generation, we as believers face a choice to either stand or to capitulate to the spirit of the age. Is that happening in your life right now? Are you more influenced by the culture today, by what you read on Twitter, by what you see on social media, by what you hear your peers saying? Is that more influential in your life than God's word? Are you slipping? Are you sliding towards that rather than climbing towards God's word? There will always be a need to fight battles as Luther fought battles. The battle for inerrancy, that will never change. Is Scripture truly God's Word? The battle for proper interpretation, for sound doctrine, those things will always be constant. There will always be a need to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have by being able to share the pure truth of the gospel, to know what that is, to be able to articulate it, to preach sola fide, one of the great rallying cries of the Reformation, justification by faith alone. Can you preach that? Can you articulate it? Can you point to it in Scripture? That need will always be around. We need to be ready to defend biblical truth on the issues of the day, on gender, on sexuality, on marriage. Those issues are not going away. Friends, know what you believe and why you believe it. Be able to open up that word which is so precious and point people to the truth. Here I stand. I can do no other. May we be inspired this morning by the words of a very flawed man but an incredibly faithful brother who today stands as a giant in our spiritual history. I think about Thanksgiving coming soon. Will you be thankful? Will you be grateful that you have the very word of our creator in your hands, that that you can turn to it day and night in your own language and read it multiple times and know this great God? Will you be thankful for that? Thank you, Dr. Luther. But even more so, thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen? Pray with me.